You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Welcome to Birth Aloud. I'm here today with Zahn Valines of Atlanta, Georgia. Zahn is a consumer advocate who I met because there was this big dust up around a certain midwifery practice in that area. And um, right now there's yet another dust up around this midwifery practice by the hospital where those midwives have privileges. So I wanted Zon to come on here and explain to everyone what's going on. And I also wanted to give everyone kind of a, some context for what's happening. Um, a lot of times we see all over the country, when you get a popular and well-liked physician who practices in a very respectful and evidence-based way, who believes in giving women choice and respects their informed decision-making, sometimes those guys kind of make targets of themselves. That kind of approach to obstetric care is, it's an outlier approach, unfortunately. And so we've seen this happen um, more than once, right, Zon? I mean, this is this is at least the second time that this doctor has um, has kind of gotten in trouble with this hospital for respecting women's choices. Yes, yes. The way that I got involved in this is um, I was 36, 37 weeks pregnant, and I had chosen my doctor, Dr. Booth Taylor, based on all of the criteria that you outlined. I wanted someone who was going to respect me. I wanted someone who was respectful of women. I wanted someone who didn't think that he had the right to tell women what to do with their bodies when they were making reasonable choices. Um, so I was, I thought I was at the end of my pregnancy. I was, you know, ready to have our baby, super excited. Um, you know, I had gone on maternity leave. I wanted to relax. And I got a text from my doula saying, what are you going to do now that your provider is suspended? And I I thought that she was on drugs. I thought we're going to have to fire her. She's insane. Um, so I called my doctor and was like, um, we got this text from my doula. And it turned out that he had been summarily suspended from the hospital. No advanced warning. No real explanation. No word from the hospital. He was just gone. Um, alongside that, they had removed a number of birth options, um, very few of which were relevant to me because I was a first-time mom. I was low risk. I didn't really have any complicated medical needs, but I was going to have a water birth, and they had removed water birth. So not only was I not going to be able to use my provider, I was not going to be able to have a water birth. So... I was completely panicked. It was terrifying. You know, you put all of this energy into reading all you can, into planning your birth, and then it's suddenly taken from you just weeks and possibly days before you go into labor. So over several days, more of the story started to come out. 
Um, it turned out that he was going to be able to attend my birth, but I wasn't going to be able to have a water birth. They had changed a number of other policies such that it really sounded like the hospital's lawyer was going to be making medical decisions for me. He had outlined very specific procedures that the hospital could and could not use with women. Um, and it didn't matter what my doctor thought. We had to follow those procedures. For example, women would not be allowed to eat, even in early labor. They would have to be hooked up to an IV. Um, these are all things that my doctor had said were not medically necessary for me and were also contraindicated. So these were medical decisions made by someone who was not a doctor, who had not examined me, and I was going to have to abide by them. And I wasn't going to well, do and, that. And let me just interject to say that um, they're also not supported by current guidelines and evidence. Right, right. Um, they're not supported by evidence. And that was part of the reason that I didn't want to do these things is because I knew that they weren't going to be healthy for me. But also, I trust my doctor, not not some lawyer who's never met me and who has no medical training. So it's very scary. You're going in and you have these decisions made for you. You worry that you're going to be fighting with people when you're in labor because they've taken this very aggressive stance toward women, basically telling them that they can't choose what happens to them in labor. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't really see anybody rising to the occasion to do anything. No one really seemed to know what to do. And so I decided that I had better change this because I was going to have my water birth and I was going to have it with my provider and I was not going to stop with it. So as sort of an act of desperation, I started planning this really big protest. Um, we did a letter writing campaign. We did a phone call campaign. We were leaving negative reviews online and we planned um, a very large in-person protest that got something like 1,500 people interested, and we would have had several hundred people attending. So a couple of days before the planned protest, the hospital asked if some women from my group that were organizing this protest would come meet with them. So we sort of reluctantly agreed because the relationship with the hospital had really deteriorated. The hospital had been really abusive to women who were calling and asking about you know, what was going to happen to them. So, for example, um, we, one of the things we did as part of our campaign is we had women write to the hospital and say, you know, you've approved this birth plan. Um, what's going to happen? Um, I, for example, wrote to the hospital and said, you know, you've agreed previously that I didn't have to have an IV and that I could eat when I was in labor and that I could have a water birth, and now you're telling me no. And then the responses to these letters started coming in, and they were very bizarre. They were all from the hospital lawyer, and they gave medical opinions and, like, oddly intrusive medical opinions. So, like, in the hospital lawyer's letter to me, he said, we need access to your veins, which is just creepy coming from some lawyer who's never met you. It, it, there was, like, a weird kind of, like, misogynistic tone to a lot of the letters, very condescending, very much this vibe that, like, women can't be trusted to make their own decisions. And also that their doctor can't be trusted to consult with them on those decisions and that this lawyer needed to decide. That is so, super bizarre. Like some guy sitting yeah, in the office was, is like advising you all on how you're going to give birth. Yeah. So, so we go to this meeting and, and it just gets weirder at the meeting um, because 
the lawyer continued to be like really hostile. And I've been to meetings like this before where you have protesters meeting with like representatives from an entity. And usually the representatives are really friendly, really conciliatory because they don't want to escalate tensions. That's just good mediation. It's good negotiation skills. That's the politics of these things. Um, that wasn't the case. The lawyer was really disrespectful to us. Um, and you have, you know, five, six angry pregnant women pushing back on you. He didn't manage that well. He, I, I, he didn't have good answers for our questions. And I think it became clear to everyone at that meeting that we were simply not going to back down. Um, I think they had hoped that if they just met with us, we would cancel our protest. That was clearly the vibe. At the very last minute, after lots of negative reviews, after lots of discussions of the protest, about two hours after our meeting with them, they announced that they were going to basically concede most of the issues that we had raised. And like, I won't get into all of the medical technicalities, but um, they were going to allow our providers to do most of the things he had done previously. They were going to bring back water bursts. They were basically going to allow consumers to make their own decisions. So we were thrilled. We were like, this is great. You know, the hospital has realized that our voices matter and we've won. Yay. So I went and had my birth. My birth was awesome. My doctor was helpful. I felt safe. I felt supported. And I thought I was just going to go on with my life. But then I started hearing reports from other women who had birth at the hospital. And it sounded like things were backsliding. I was hearing stories of women being coerced into procedures, women being denied procedures. Um, for example, women being denied water births that they were entitled to that their doctor said was, you know, medically okay. So, um, so basically it became clear that we still had a problem with this hospital. What I didn't know is that behind the scenes, the hospital was still very upset with my doctor that his patients had staged this protest campaign. He was seen as a troublemaker as a result of that. And so we just heard about a week ago that his privileges were again suspended. The basis for which they were suspended was a successful birth of healthy twins. Um, I'm not burying the lead there. That is what happened. There were twins, they were born, they were healthy. The hospital had a problem with something about how they were born. I don't know what that was. I'm not privy to what's going on behind the scenes. But I do know that the parents of the twins said they were thrilled with the birth, you know, wrote a supportive letter. But it sounds like maybe he didn't follow some sort of hospital policy. And on that basis, they suspended his privileges again. So we're basically back where we were before. So we think the suspicion was in retaliation, one, for the previous protest, two, for just generally being someone who respects women's wishes. And we worry that the suspension is going to be permanent and that it's going to be a lot harder this time than it was last time to address it. Okay. Well, on that note, we need to go to a quick break. And when we come mm -hmm. back, I want to talk a little bit about how this is impacting the women in your community. We'll be right back with Birth Aloud. Welcome back to Birth Aloud. I'm Kristen Piscucci here with Zahn Lines of Atlanta, Georgia, 
talking about the situation there with a popular and well-liked doctor, Dr. Brad Bootsdaler, who recently had his privileges suspended um, with two hours notice, I believe, from the hospital, um, and that included his entire practice of midwives who were, you know, supporting uh, a whole group of women, um, some of whom I heard found out that actually went into the hospital to give birth that day and then found out that they would not be seeing their care provider. Their privileges were suspended. Zan, can you tell me a little bit more about how this has affected people? Yeah, sure. So, you know, at first blush, particularly if you've never given birth or it's been a very long time since you gave birth, it might seem like it's not that big of a deal to go into the hospital and not get your chosen provider. Um, You know, the line we always hear is, well, the baby's okay, so everything's okay. But if people really think about this for a second, you know, birth is really intimate, it's difficult, it can be really scary, and most women, regardless of what kind of birth they want, spend a significant portion of their pregnancies planning for their birth. They plan how to have a natural birth, or how to have an epidural, or how to have a C-section, or maybe all three. So to have your plans upended with no advanced warning, and you get there and some guy you've never met is going to deliver your baby, that's really intimidating. Um, that's really scary. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what that's like. Um, yeah, well, and I think it's not- worth mentioning, too, that every doctor and every midwife practices differently. And... There's a reason why people choose the people they choose. We know for a fact that when you look at statistics within a single hospital, there's a really wide variation among how physicians practice and midwives practice. So in the same hospital, you might have, you know, a doctor with a a 20% C-section rate and a 5% episiotomy rate and a doctor with a 75% C-section rate and a 90% episiotomy rate. Women, women take these choices very seriously most of the time. Right, and that's, that's one of the things that has sprung forth from this is that we're hearing a lot from women who have given birth with other doctors at the hospital. And some of their stories are really horrifying. Um, one of the things that we have heard about is a woman who had a coerced episiotomy. And an episiotomy is cut into the vagina that is largely medically unnecessary. Um, It can cause lifelong problems or it can just be a really bad thing that happens to you. Everyone used to get episiotomies. It used to be, you know, back in the day in our, you know, grandmother's generation, um, I think well over 90% of women had episiotomies and it was just part of the process. Like you were kind of on your back and you're vaginal opening was cut and the baby was literally pulled out of your body. Over time, the evidence became very, very clear that episiotomies were, when done routinely, are, are harmful, are really harmful and cause, and cause all of the problems that they were assumed to have been preventing all of these years. And so the, the rate of episiotomy has gone down drastically um, over like the last 30 years or so. My, my point is that if a doctor has a high episiotomy rate or likes to do episiotomies, it's generally because it's a physician preference and not because it's a medical, um, a medical issue. Right. And the, you know, the other thing that I just have to really emphasize here is that women have a right to say no to medical procedures, even when they are pregnant. And even in Georgia, they have this right. 
even if an episiotomy were beneficial, a woman still has a right to say no to it. Women don't see seeing people just because they're having babies. Yes. So we hear a lot of stories about women having coerced episiotomies, but we have, you know, one example of a woman who's been very vocal, who told her doctor that she didn't want an episiotomy. She put it in her birth plan. She was very clear about this. Nothing dramatic happened during her birth. She just had normal birth. And after the birth, the doctor told her that she had cut her, um, you know, without her permission, knowing that she didn't want it. And this woman was totally traumatized by this. You know, I think she at first felt like, well, I just have to accept it. That's just the way it is. And then over time, grew to see this as something really abusive. Um, So this is pretty representative of the sorts of practices that are happening at this hospital with other doctors. And, you know, we're hearing about... Lots of lots of things like this where, you know, people get in to the hospital and they're told, well, it's hospital policy that you have to do this or the doctor just does what they want and, you know, they don't care later. But the big thing that this hospital has leaned on is they've set all of these really onerous policies that are not evidence-based and they've told women, well, it's hospital policy, so you have to do it. Now, people hear that and they think, well, you know, a hospital can set whatever policies they want. And that's true. They can. But hospital policy doesn't trump a patient's right to informed consent and informed refusal. So a hospital can, you know, establish whatever protocols they want, but they can't use those protocols to force a woman to do something with her body that she doesn't want to do um, unless the baby's life is in imminent danger. That's the law in Georgia. Um, so, you know, we see this hospital leans on policy as if it is the law, and they use this policy to make women think that they have no choice. Um, that's why when it announces policy changes, is so troubling. Yeah. Well, and that's certainly not unique to that hospital. That's pretty, that's pretty common. Right. So, but, but my doctor, Dr. Booth-Taylor, doesn't practice this way. And so patients love him. And... This is a hospital that did not have a great reputation for labor and delivery before he started practicing there. They really had nothing really special to offer. Um, but he moved there, and his many devoted fans followed him there. So then they offered something really great. They marketed it heavily, heavily. Um, even now, I see Facebook ads about how at DeKalb Medical Center, you can choose your own birth, and it's so wonderful and so awesome, and they respect patient choice. Um, so they've used him to get new patients. And now that they've got those patients, they're saying, oh, no, you can't do what you want. And we won't respect your birth. And also, we're going to fire your doctor. So, so Dr. Booth Taylor does not practice in this way that is sort of abusive and coercive and just generally disrespectful of women, um, which is why people like him. But a lot of folks at the hospital don't like this. Um, the other thing that is important to consider here is that a significant portion of this hospital's patient population are Medicaid recipients, which means that for the most part, the hospital will get reimbursed for whatever it does to these patients. So there's kind of an incentive to just do a lot of interventions um, if the patient doesn't object. And I guess maybe sometimes if they do, based on the stories we've heard. So What we think has happened is that Booth Taylor has drawn in patients who like him, but he threatens other doctors 
and is perhaps not making money for the hospital the way they would like. We also think that the hospital finds his patients difficult because they ask questions about what's happening to them. And well, because they have, the they have expectations, like that. right? <laughs> right, because they, they have expectations that, shockingly, they still own their bodies even though they're pregnant. But the hospital doesn't like it. Um, so they see him as a pain and they want him gone, I think. This is my speculation. And so that's what they're trying to do. And it's really bizarre because they've used him to spend patients. And even as of today, they're marketing to people saying, oh, you can have your birth plan respected and we'll give you this great birth experience. But behind the scenes, they're removing option after option after option. Um, Isn't that funny? So you would think found- like they, they're not that far from Birmingham. You would think that yeah, they would have I know. learned from the Brookwood Medical Center case where they were promising exactly. that they would respect them and, you know, respect their choices and their birth plans. And it was, you know, that women could have choice over their control over their own births. And then they didn't and they got sued. And I think $5 million was the part of the judgment that was, that had to do with fraud, that they were defrauding the community with their advertising. Well, and it's very, it's a very similar situation to Brookwood. I I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, it's almost identical. And so, you know, we hear people try to explain this as like a liability issue that the hospital's afraid of getting sued. Um, They should be afraid of getting sued by patients who have their consent violated and who are injured in the process. Um, you know, I, I want to speak to the liability thing for just a second. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but there's this notion that people can just sue for whatever they want and get millions upon millions of dollars, even when there's no reason. And that's not true. Um, you know, people can't sue for medical malpractice when they tell a doctor not to perform a procedure and that doctor doesn't perform the procedure. That's just not how it works. And so this notion that, you know, if a doctor doesn't force a patient to have a C-section, the patient is going to sue is just ridiculous. And it's a way of excusing really abusive behavior. Yeah. That, that, um, the whole legal liability question is really convoluted when it comes to maternity care. Right. Right. And we've gotten to this point where we have the legal system intruding on people's births. We have hospitals seeking court orders for C-sections that may or may not actually be medically necessary. Um, there is at least one case where a woman has died, um, after a court ordered C-section. So there's been plenty of research on that too, on court ordered C-sections. The, um, the, in retrospect, (laughs) um, many or most of those decisions were, were wrong when the forced C-section was allowed to happen. Well, and I think something that's really important to highlight here, like one of the things that we've found here in Atlanta is that, it's a really interesting hodgepodge of like political belief who get involved in this issue. We have women at all ends of the political spectrum. Um, We've tried to get more involvement from sort of mainstream generalized women's rights advocates. And we often find that they're not interested in this. Um, And it's really troubling. And we think that this kind of results from the notion that like, you know, pregnancy isn't that interesting. And like once women become mothers, they're not really that relevant to the women's movement anymore. But also um, we think that a really sexist notion enables this hospital culture. And that is this, it's that women can't be trusted to make intelligent decisions. And also 
that mothers are not the best people to make decisions for their babies, that men who don't know these women, who don't know their histories and who have never examined them are the ones who are best equipped to make decisions for them. Um, and this is ridiculous. You know, if you take an average mother who's not abusive and who generally has the best intentions for her child, she is going to make much, much better decisions for her child with a little bit of information than any lawyer sitting in an office who has never examined her. But we're trying to take control away from these women for some reason because we think that they just can't be trusted to be advocates for their children. And the, the notion that a woman is not going to protect her child is just insane. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it seems like the default is women can't be trusted to make these decisions. Like that is the default belief. And, you know, that's, that's applied to the all women. <laughs> right. And we saw a lot of that sort of in our, in our campaign back in August, in the first protest, we saw a lot of really subtle sort of misogynistic language surrounding, you know, basically calling our group hysterical, implying that we didn't really understand what was happening behind the hospital, implying that we didn't really understand what hospital policy was or what evidence-based medicine was. And the very clear message from the hospital is, look at these hysterical women who don't know what's best for them. We know what's best for them. Um, that was clear in their language on their social media posts. It was clear in their statements to the press. We were roundly treated as if we were just like maniacs. That sounds, can, that sounds like it's consistent with um, how their doctors are treating patients. Right. And, it, and, and we're seeing like that culture flows from the top. It, it, it's, barely, it's very clear that the leadership of the hospital is just not very respectful of women and sees them as hysterical people who need to be controlled. Well, on that note, Zan, we are out of time. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. And we'll be right back with a former patient of this hospital who says she experienced exactly what Zahn just described, an episiotomy without her consent at the hands of her doctor. Stay tuned. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. Now we're going to talk to one of the consumers who Zahn has been working with. Her name is Katie Kissel. She's a 28-year-old mother of two and business professional in Atlanta. She's been involved in some of the efforts around the DeCobb med medical dust-up, and she wanted to share her story. And I think it's an important one because it definitely gives some context to this whole situation. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kristen. I really appreciate you having me on. Sure. Well, I think, um, I think stories like yours are really important. Um, I think people don't have a really good idea sometimes of what goes on in maternity care, and we need to get these stories out there. So share with me whatever you feel comfortable. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, I have uh, two children. Uh, my son, who's getting ready to turn three in July, and my daughter, who will be six months at the end of May. And, uh, well, I mean, before I had even gotten pregnant with my son, 
you know, my husband and I had happened to come across, you know, a few documentaries and some things about birth statistics in the United States and how our mortality rate for um, women and children is is not very good when you compare us to the other developed countries in the world and and kind of why that is and um you know especially after i was pregnant with my son i decided that yeah you know i really wanted to give this natural birth thing a try and my family they all looked at me like i had four heads um when i talked to them about natural birth and and what that meant like the the idea of not choosing to get an epidural was just crazy but i i really felt like that was something that um was what was best for me i felt like that that um i saw i actually witnessed my my sister giving birth and i saw her get an epidural and, and then get more pitocin and get you know, up her epidural and get more Pitocin and that cycle. And, and, um, you know, I, I just really felt like that for me and, you know, for the best birthing outcome possible, the solution should be to try and do it without any kind of drugs that if you could do it that way, that that was the best way. And that was the way that I wanted. So, um, so when I was researching, uh, I knew I wanted to be in a hospital setting, even though I, I wanted to give natural birth. So that's what I was looking for. And I was looking for those two options, something that would be in a hospital, but would provide me the best or the most likely uh, natural birth outcome. And I came across uh, a practice which had a midwife on staff. And so um for my son, there there were other OBs on staff as well, but I figured, hey, if they have a midwife on staff, they must be on board, and and they were highly um, recommended. So um, and, and they practiced at the Cab Medical, which was a baby friendly hospital. Um, so those those were the people I chose. Um, after I chose them, it kind of came out that hey, the midwife is only going to be there one day a week. She's in rotation, just like all the other practitioners. So unless you happen to have your baby on that one day, um, then you're probably not going to get a midwife. But, you know, um, maybe that should have been a red flag for me, uh, but it wasn't. I, I decided, you know, hey, they still have the idea and they still have the, you know, methodology behind them. This is where I wanted to stay. And it ended up being a little different than I expected, as we later found out. So you had spoken with them while you were pregnant about your plans. Yes. Yeah. Actually, um, my my midwife and I came up with a birth plan together, and she was the one who brought me the paperwork and helped me fill out my birth plan. And I was, you know, excited about that. Although, I mean, I'm a realist. I know that on that day things can change and things can go a lot differently than you expect it. It's a plan. It's not set in stone. But I was fairly confident at that time that my um, doctor or whoever my provider was at that day 
would do whatever they could to help, you know, make that plan happen if, if it was possible. Well, I always like to say birth plans, birth plans aren't really about, they're not really a plan for birth because it's not really, it's not like you're saying I'm going to dilate at one centimeter an hour and my plan is to be in labor for 12 hours and 10 minutes. And my plan is, you know what I mean? It's not really about birth. It's really kind of your medical care. It's actually a list of medical decisions that you're making preemptively that you're preparing for unless something changes. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's how I felt. Um, Unfortunately, so just to give you a little bit on my my birth story, and I'll I'll try and give you somewhat of the um, shortened down version of it. Um, I was induced. Um, I was six days post due date and they, they said that they wanted to induce me. Um, and I had been about four centimeters dilated for two weeks and two centimeters dilated a week before that. Um, so very much uncomfortable, um, as you can imagine. Um, but you know, my, my midwife and I had, had made a plan for that. We were going to, you know, have them break my water first and see if that induced labor naturally to try and avoid taking the pedosin, which she knew would make it very difficult for me to go through with a a natural birth uh, with induction. And I walked in to the room that day and um, the doctor that was on call for the practice walked in, her name was Dr. Manderville, uh, walked in and I, you know, showed her the plan and her and then the nurses that were with her that day kind of chuckled, you know, when they saw my birth plan. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of asked, like, oh, what's funny? And she said, oh, well, we just laughed because we say any woman with a birth plan never goes according to their plan. And uh, so, you know, that was kind of wow. my... My first how did that, experience. How did that yeah. Make feel? <laughs> well, I'm not good. You know, I mean, I was like, you know, I, I maybe felt like that she wasn't necessarily talking to me. That maybe she was talking about like those other women. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, but <laughs> you know, those other women who are are real demanding and stuff. And I'm not one of those women. You know, that's what I was saying in my head, at least. Um, and I told her, I was like, oh no, you know. I'm, I'm relaxed. You know, I understand how these things work. Um, but that was the beginning of what ended up being several things that happened. I, right off the bat, she said, I'm not going to break your water. This will not work. That's what she told me. She said, this will not work. We'll, we're going to do Pitocin. So she didn't yeah. really give you a choice in that? She just said, this is no. what we're doing? No, I I didn't know I had a choice. I think that's what a lot of women, and that's probably the most important thing to me that I want women to know. You have a choice. You can say no, you know, but but we don't want to be difficult, do we? You know, we don't want to be that woman. We don't want to be the difficult one. Only difficult people, you know, argue with their doctors. And that is um, basically what I wish I could reach back in time and kind of like shake that version of myself from back then. I wish I could just shake her and say, you can say no, 
and you have a choice. Um, but I didn't feel like, feel like I did. And, and so then it began and, um, I was given Pitocin, but I didn't take the epidural right away. Um, seven hours later, I was maybe two centimeters more dilated than when I came in and I was in serious pain. Explain just for the people at home to make sure that everybody understands what we're talking about. Um, Pitocin is a drug that, that starts or speeds up labor and um, it mimics the hormone that occurs naturally in a pregnant woman um, that makes the uterus contract. So when, when you do it artificially, it's basically creating contractions, but they are almost always much more painful and a lot of times a lot more frequent than an unmedicated labor would be. Um, and so I, it's, it seems really hard to imagine someone you know, having Pitocin and not having an epidural because that's not something you're kind of made to deal with. <laughs> no. So, I mean, after about seven hours of that, I, I was done. Um, the, and she said, you know, I feel like if I give you the epidural at this point, your body will relax and the late, you know, and you will, you know, definitely dilate much more quickly. And, and so I and said, can okay. You, can I ask you? Know, um, this whole time, what were you doing for seven hours? Um, I was laying in bed. Um, I was walking around the room a little bit, you know, because I, I didn't have the epidural. So I was uh, a little bit mobile. I couldn't walk very much, right? Because uh, being hooked up to the line, you were really constricted to a very uh, small area. I couldn't get, you know, into any kind of water or, you know, in, into a shower, anything that you would normally do to help ease uh, labor pain. Gotcha. Well, um, let me interrupt you for just a minute. We need to go to a break. We'll be right back to hear the rest of Katie's story. And we're back with Katie, who is just describing her um, her birth and but yeah, so um, I did get the epidural, and this is um, an interesting, ironic, or funny part of the story uh, that the epidural actually made me a little nauseous, and so I asked them for a bucket. When my doctor came in to check on me, she she looked at the bucket and she said, "Hey, is that a puke bucket?" And I said, "Well, yeah, that you know, the epidural is making me nauseous." She's like. Okay, well, I have to let you know, if you puke, I puke. And uh, my husband and I just were completely floored at that statement. She didn't even want to see the bucket in the room that if I were to throw up, that I would need to let her know in advance because she would need to leave the room. I ended up not puking. We uh, were about an hour and a half, two hours later, I was actually pushing. Um, because the, uh, the epidural did do its job and I felt better. I couldn't feel anything. In fact, uh, down there, I didn't even feel the pressure to push. They had to tell me when to push. And, um, I was pushing for about 45 minutes and which isn't a very long time, especially I think for the first time around. And, uh, all of a sudden I hear her say, I'm going to cut you now. She gave me an episiotomy and there was no discussion about her giving me episiotomy. Uh, it was really confusing at the time because everything I'd read up until that point 
told me that doctors didn't do that anymore. That it was no longer recommended uh, that that they, you know, they actually made tearing worse, not better. And maybe you could give a better description to our listeners of what an episiotomy is. Um, yeah, um, I actually think we talked about that in um, the first half of the show with Zahn. Um, we've known for at least 25 years with very good, solid evidence that routine episiotomy causes more harm than good. And, um, and yet we still have doctors here and there, more, more than we should have, who do them routinely. The evidence also shows that the majority of them, even today through the 21st century, the majority of them are done without the permission of the person who is being cut. And that's a real problem because any medical procedure requires consent, including from pregnant women who are giving birth. So it sounds like she didn't explain um, explain anything to you or ask you for permission. No, she did, she did not. I mean, she it was done not even seconds after she says, I'm going to cut you now. And honestly, by the time I'd processed what that meant, it was already done. It, it's just uh, mind-blowing to me that, that that is still still a thing. Just to let you know, I mean, I, I tore up the back, I tore up the front. I didn't know how bad I had tore until I went back for my follow-up appointment with my with my midwife and she was like, wow, this is really, um, extensive. And, um, I, I ended up bleeding for many months after that. So, um, so anyway, a few minutes later, um, my son was born. Um, we had him, you know, left him attached for a few minutes because that is what I had asked and I, I made sure at that point that I said, you know, I would like to leave the cord attached. And uh, while we were, we were doing that, you know, I, I delivered the afterbirth. Um, and my, uh, the doctor looks up at my husband when it was time and said, would you like to cut the cord? And he says, no. And I looked at him and I, and I was like, what do you mean? No. He's like, I have to go. And he bolted out of the room. So I ended up cutting the cord. What I found out later was that he had seen the afterbirth and it had made him a little queasy. And he was afraid that he was going to make my doctor get sick. And she was stitching me up at the time. And so, wow. so my, my husband uh, actually didn't get to cut the cord on his son because uh, he was too afraid that my doctor might get sick, sick while she was stitching me up. So, yeah, so, you know, it was an interesting experience to say the least. That being said, you know, again, even after it was said and done, I didn't feel like I had a right to complain because I had a healthy baby. And, you know, we think of all the women out there who don't have healthy babies. And so you feel like if you complain, that makes you ungrateful, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I did know when I got pregnant the second time around that I wanted something different. I did know that. And I, I, I knew that this wasn't for me, that I was going to have to find something different. And luckily I came across 
sea baby midwifery, which was, uh, I think I found out probably just a few weeks after my son was born that they would be delivering at the cab medical. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want. I want to be delivered by a midwife in a hospital setting. And so this is who I'm going to go with. Um, and then I found out uh, about a few months before my uh, daughter was born that the Cobb Medical was revoking the baby's privileges. When I found that out, I obviously had a, question, a lot of questions. One of the questions was, who was responsible for this huge change in policy at DeKalb Medical? And when I got the answer, it kind of just shook everything into perspective for me because I found out the new OB chair at DeKalb Medical, the person who was kind of leading the charge on this issue, was the doctor who delivered my son, Dr. Don Manderville, the same one who had an obvious disdain for natural birth, um, you know, was the one who was leading this charge against someone who promotes natural birth. The midwives at um, at Sea Baby and, and Dr. Boots Taylor um, promote, you know, a woman's choice on her birth experience. And a doctor has a lot of medical knowledge, but only you have your body and only you can have the right to choose what happens to that body. Um, and so, you know, and that's why I decided to go with C-Baby uh, in the first place. And when I found out that uh, Dr. Manderville, who was the really the sole reason that I sought out C-Baby, was the one who was potentially responsible for ruining my second birth experience, it really lit a fire in me and mm -hmm. gave me the courage that I needed to speak out about this. I, I will say that due to some amazing moms and efforts on their part and uh, Zahn, who is absolutely incredible, that we were able to fight and have DeKalb Medical retract almost all of their previous conditions. Well, because at first they banned him altogether, then days later, they they just kept taking steps and steps and steps backwards until basically all of his privileges and all of C Baby's privileges were reinstated, uh, minus a couple things. And um, we really saw it as a victory at the time. And I was able to give birth to my daughter um, at DeKalb Medical by a sea baby midwife. And I was able to give birth via water birth. There are no words for the m amazing experience. And, you know, I had always wanted to give birth naturally for my child. That's why I wanted to do it, because I felt like it was the best option that gave my child the best chance at a healthy start into this world. But I never expected for it to do so much for me. I felt like a superhero. 
I felt like there is nothing in this world that can crush me because I have accomplished the greatest thing in the universe. And I don't think I could have done that without being in the water, to be honest, um, because it is hard. Anyone who tells you that childbirth isn't hard is crazy, but it is a thousand percent worth it. And it was amazing. I, I went into labor on my own and I walked in to the, uh, to the hospital and I was already six centimeters dilated. By the time they got me into the water, I was in there for about an hour and a half and started pushing and I was pushing for about 30 to 45 minutes before my daughter was born. And wow, that's it fast. was absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was fast and it was it was the most amazing experience of my life. Can you contrast that with how you felt the first time? Oh, I mean, no, I can't honestly because there there is just no comparison. To what that was like if you know and I'm sure I mean I'm a realist um, anybody will tell you that your second child is easier than your first okay that there to some level but there is when I walked into the hospital and I was six centimeters dilated I was still having like conversations you know full-on conversations with my husband you know, I walked, I walked back to the room and I felt great. It wasn't really until it was time for me to push that I would say what I was feeling was real pain. And, you know, what the great thing about the pain, I would say, is that there's this relief at the other end of it, that the pushing and, and then just the relief you feel afterward is better than any kind of high that you could possibly imagine. And uh, I, again, I didn't expect that. That was not what I was doing it for, but it was so incredible. And I would do it again. Well, if you could say anything to that doctor, what would you say? I would say to her that I still have a choice and I still have rights and you can't treat me that way and you can't treat anybody that way just because you think you're you're smarter or you know more um that ultimately I am the one who has the final say not you and um, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I would say that. And I would also add that obviously, you know, other women have felt the same way. And maybe you should, maybe she should take a look inside herself and see what inside her makes her have such a disdain. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You too. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. 
on WLXU. We'll see you next time.